0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, largely unexamined premises made with deceptively convoluted paradoxes to produce lots and lots of backward facing unicorns with dangerously horned hindquarters. Highs, lows, and picture shows. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a nice in-depth interview with Susan R. Matthews this time, discussing Fleet Renegade. This is the second omnibus Bain has issued containing the complete first six books in Susan's under-jurisdiction science fiction series. Fleet Renegade collects three novels from the series. uh, That would be books four, five, and six. And brings a reader up to date for Susan's new under-jurisdiction novel, Blood Enemies, which is out in April. So we'll talk with Susan about Fleet Renegade soon. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. Speaking of blood enemies, it's now out in eARC form at the Bayon eBooks website. This one stands alone, but it's also a great addition to and a real high point in the Under Jurisdiction series by Susan R. Matthews, and it's all new. We are bringing this series back in a big way. To end a genocidal menace, a retired torturer must again take up his hated trade. Andrei Kosciuszko is a former fleet medical officer for the enormous totalitarian star empire, the jurisdiction. But when he served in the fleet, Andre's real job was not medicine, but to act as a torturer of prisoners. Andre thought he'd left all that behind, but now the Angel of Death, which is a savage terrorist organization from Andre's system of origin, Means to make gone beyond space, where Andrew has taken refuge, its own, but its ancestral enemy, the Secret Service of the uh, Dolgoruki Church, the Malcontent—that's the name of the organization—has planted a double agent on the inside of the Angel of Death. The, the only way to save the mission and bring down an organization that's slain whole systems of men, women, and children is for Andrew to embrace the savagery in his own heart once again like an alcoholic having to drink and um, take on the role of judicial torturer, a role he thought he'd fought long and hard to escape. So it's a great impossible paradox kind of story that Andre has to solve there. <laughs> Good book. Also in a yark form is 1636, The Mission to the Muggles by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. This is a new addition to the Ring of Fire series created by Eric Flint. After carving a free state for itself in war-torn 17th century Europe, citizens of the modern-day Grantville, West Virginia, go on a quest for the makings of medicines that have yet to be invented in 17th century Europe. So when they went back, they didn't go back with, uh, you know, antibiotic plants and such. So they've, they've really got to rebuild that sort of thing with the limited knowledge that the, you would find in a small town. The prime minister of the U.S.E., Mike Stern, sends a mission to the Mughal Empire of India, with the aim of securing a trade deal with the emperor, Shah Jahan. The emperor's sons are plotting against each other, and war is brewing with the newly risen uh, Sikh faith. But in the end, it seems the emperor's princesses and princes are no more immune to the waves of change created by the Ring of Fire than the Americans are themselves. So, Electronic advance Reader Copies 4. Blood Enemies by Susan R. Matthews, and for 1636, the Mission to the Muggles are now available at Baneybooks.com. want to welcome Susan R. Matthews to the podcast. Hello, Susan. <laughs> Hi. Susan R. Matthews was raised in a military family and spent her younger years living around the globe in a myriad of places, including Germany, both coasts of the U.S. and India, Often cut off from television and other media, egads, she read voraciously. Matthews' debut novel, An Exchange of Hostages, the first entry in her critically acclaimed Under Jurisdiction series, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. Matthews was also, Susan, I should say, was also a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Susan lives in Seattle with her wife, Maggie, and two delightful dogs. She is a veteran of the U.S. Army, where she served as operations and security officer of a combat support hospital. She's also an avid, and I mean pretty avid, ham radio operator. (laughs) There are now seven novels in the Under Jurisdiction series. The new entry in the series is Blood Enemies, and it will be out from Bain Books in April. And the first six are collected in two omnibus editions. Fleet Inquisitor is the first one, and it was out last fall. And now at booksellers everywhere is Fleet Renegade, which includes the Under Jurisdiction novels, Hour of Judgment, The Devil in Deep Space, and Warring States. So Susan, uh, well, tell us, tell us a bit about the ham Radio, by the way. I'm I'm interested in that because I've I've seen you participating in events when I've looked at, say, your um, I guess your Facebook page and such.
2: Ham radio, I'd I like to tell people that it's tomorrow's technology yesterday. The contribution of ham radio to modern tech, uh, communications technology cannot be underestimated, and it is wow. uh, a topic and a subject upon which a person can geek out endlessly. <laughs> However, uh, my real reasons for getting involved in ham radio were twofold, and, and one of them was Um, The fact that as our infrastructure gets more and more complicated, uh, the number of things can go wrong with it, increase, fire, flood, famine, tsunamis, uh, uh, ion storms, whatever. Um, When all else fails, ham, radio, we can get the signal through. So I wanted to be useful to the community, and that means that I can uh, participate in community activities like um, on a parade route, The ham radio operators can provide information to the first responders on how things are going and so forth, that uh, our emergency responders don't necessarily have the staffing to be able to monitor. That, and I want to do skywave propagation and talk to my brother Davey in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where you can uh, bounce your signal off the ionosphere. Mm -hmm. I think that's way cool. I'm getting there very slowly. I'm not moving very quickly. Uh, but hey, good things take time. And uh, what I like to say about skywave propagation is that cell towers go down and, uh, communication satellites go down and cell phone service and, uh, voice over internet, all of those things go down. The ionosphere does not go down.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. So we've got, uh, so you're basically the backup for the, um communication infrastructure of the United States in case of EMP attack
2: That's right me and the other members proud members of the amateur radio service of the United States government we are actually a government agency with no budget <laughs> no regu- well we do have regulations but no budget and uh no federal employees uh completely volunteer run and administered but uh we are actually a government agency, and that's one of the reasons that we get the bandwidth. The, uh, the government believes that the ham radio community advances the state of communications art and science, uh, and performs a useful function in disasters and, uh, and other such events.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for doing that. <laughs> um, so, tell us about the uh, the jurisdiction. What's the setting for these novels, and um, how has it sort of developed over the course of the books?
2: When I started thinking about uh, jurisdiction, um, I had been reading Chinese murder mysteries and interested in Chinese history in general. Also, when a person reads about the totalitarian governments in Europe in the 20th century, there's a lot of elements in common of a situation in which the emphasis is placed on the use of legality to control a population. So I thought, well, you know, how would we make that happen? And the short answer was, well, Susan, imagine, if you will, Susan, that the Supreme Court uh, took over the executive and the legislative branch and then went quietly out of its mind. Uh, and then fast forward by a very large span of years that I have never bothered to define. And what you might come up with is a, a system of government that actually started as commerce regulation, uh, regulating trade between world families, uh, but that has grown into a overarch, an overarching, um, System of government that exists to regulate trade, collect taxes, uh, enforce the rule of law and the judicial order. So it's done some really good things. Uh, it's, um, it's gotten involved from time to time in some social issues that I think that a lot of people would recognize as being a good thing. For instance, uh, you have to have a special exception if you want to keep slaves under jurisdiction. Uh, generally speaking, that's frowned upon. But the issue is that the uh, jurisdiction continues to expand. It continues to encounter new world families, uh, strange new worlds, if you will. And the bigger the thing gets, the more difficult it is to keep control of the whole thing. So, as has happened and continues to happen with a lot of authoritarian governments, uh, the bigger it gets and the more difficulty it starts having controlling its population, the more extreme it becomes in uh, the tools and the methods to which it is ready to resort to maintain control. And when the series starts, uh, we're at a point where jurisdiction is really starting to put the screws down, uh, they have started a instituted a formal program of uh, the, that depends upon the use of torture as an instrument of state for social control. The whole idea being do not get crosswise of jurisdiction. Take, do anything that you need to do to avoid uh, being noticed by the bench. Um, because if the bench determines that you have violated a, a, a bench law or regulation, then uh, they'll they'll get a hold of you, and uh, you will confess to having committed that violation. At that point, it doesn't really matter if you have or not. That's not the point. The point is to demonstrate that the bench is infallible. And so if I say that you have stolen a mulberry, you will confess to having stolen a mulberry to validate the whole system uh, that depends on me being absolutely correct when I say you have stolen a mulberry. You may have stolen a raspberry. You may have stolen a pear. Doesn't matter. I don't care. You will confess to, st- to stealing a mulberry. Uh, the the extent to which this system of institutionalized torture has developed, it, it's it's pretty new actually. Uh, Andre, my protagonist. Uh, He he goes to Fleet because it's traditional in his family for inheriting sons to uh, perform public service in uh, government agencies to demonstrate uh, his uh, submission, as it will, if you will, uh, to uh, the world as he lives in it. Um, So Andre's father, when he was a young man, He went and he spent a couple of years in the jurisdiction's fleet, and he was a security officer. When Andre's father was in fleet, it was before jurisdiction had really started to gin up their their torture program. And so what Andre's father has in his mind when you tell him, oh, your son is going to have to torture people, is that that means that his son is going to command a team of four to six really big guys with bad attitudes who will take people uh, out into an alleyway and, uh, and beat them to a bloody pulp, for instance. But nothing anything like as a convoluted Byzantine and horrific as the system of inquiry has become, and it's part of the conflict between Andre and his dad, when uh, his father says, "Okay, you have graduated from Mayon, uh, man. Excuse me. Uh, you wanted to go be a doctor. You're a surgeon now. You're a beautiful surgeon. Everybody thinks you're a lovely surgeon. But now it's time for you to go and do your duty to the government by serving in fleet for a couple of years. About four, eight, 16, it depends um and the only slot that will satisfy your family's pride and the prestige of the Dolgaru Key combine is the single is the is that of the senior officer on a jurisdiction cruiser killer cat class battle wagon uh you you must be placed in a position of prominence and influence. You must be a ship's surgeon. The ship's surgeon is ship's inquisitor. Andre tells his father, I do not want anything to do with that. Andre's father, uh, still in his mind, just thinking about taking people out into an alleyway and beating them up, which is horrific enough, says, oh, oh, butch up. Uh, Although he doesn't quite put it in those terms. Uh, Leading to... um, uh, a misunderstanding that reverberates
1: through uh, several of the novels in the remainder of the series. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And so, tell us about Andre Um Who is this guy? What's he? Um, he's he's a sensitive guy. He he's also like he's incredibly intelligent, incredibly good surgeon, like you said. How does he start out when he? And and where is he at the start of Our of Judgment, which is the first novel in? Fleet renegade
2: um andre kosciusko is as you say a young man uh he's an intelligent young man uh he comes from a privileged background so he has had every advantage to to nourish and support his native intelligence uh he has some uh, uh some other chara- uh personal characteristics that uh may be associated with his family background he's uh he's quite stubborn. Uh, which is good because he'll need all the stubbornness he can get to survive what's ahead of him. Um, And he really wanted uh, to go out and do something uh, that would contribute to the greater good with his life while he was waiting for his father to get to retirement age, at which point he would become the uh, governing voice in the uh, Kosciuszko Familial Corporation. Uh, so he decided that he was going to pursue a course in medicine to alleviate human suffering. And and this is good, and this is fine, until we run into this family pride issue. Uh, and unfortunately for Andre, uh, the first thing that he finds out about learning to do horrible things to people is that uh, he really, really enjoys it. He discovers within himself a, a sadistic passion that he had—he uh, had never suspected. Um, to an extent, uh, the entire series is Andre trying to reconcile his passion for inflicting suffering on other people with the fact that he he ha- hangs on to his perception of himself as being basically a decent human being. Um, as I said, to an extent, the entire series may be, uh, may be looked at or considered as Andre's uh, unceasing efforts to reconcile two aspects of his personality. And one of the decisions that he makes early on, which I think makes him a, a hero, uh, a suitable protagonist, is that he declines to separate the two parts of his personality or the unacceptable element. Of his personality, he declines to uh, to put it aside and try not to look at it and pretend that it isn't part of him. Uh, he owns it, um, and for a while in his early career in fleet, it is not too bad. Uh, the first ship upon which he serves is the Jurisdiction Fleet ship Scylla, with Fleet Captain Earshaw Parman. And Fleet Captain Airshaw Parman doesn't have any use at all for the system of inquiry and minimizes uh, calls on Andre's services as a torturer. So for four years on Scylla, it's not too bad, but uh, he gets crosswise of some important people at the end of the novel Prisoner of Conscience in the first omnibus uh, which leads to his second posting being, uh, somewhat controversial in, uh, bench circles. They send him to the jurisdiction fleet ship Ragnarok. Uh, Ragnarok is actually an experimental v- uh, vessel. And so, some of the standards that you might expect of an active ship of war have been relaxed. One of those standards is in the character and conduct of its captain. Um, Fleet Captain Loudon is uh, is a thoroughly despicable character um, who really enjoys deploying his ship's surgeon against uh, anybody that happens to be handy for his amusement. And he's gotten very good at it. And he makes a lot of money selling tapes and he has a lot of protection because he has a lot of money and so Flea hasn't been able to do anything about him.
1: Yeah, well, Andre Andre, ch- uh, hmm. Andre doesn't know that Loudon has been recording his the torture sessions and he's selling them on the black market to aficionados of such thing, right?
2: He does not know that, yeah. Um so at the beginning of Hour of Judgment, Andre's been on the Ragnarok for four years, and, and he is hanging on by, uh, by he, the, the raw edges of his fingernails. Um, Captain Loudon has worked him very, very hard. Um, because Andre produces really, really good product. Um, and at the beginning of Hour of Judgment, Andre has been hanging on all of this time to the idea that four years and he's out. Um, But circumstances have conspired against him to present him with what he considers to be a a truly uh, horrific choice between staying on the Ragnarok and doing something that he is even more reluctant to do. Uh, and he would have told you that it was difficult for him to imagine any such case, um, and makes a decision that's a rational decision uh, on the face of it, but it's a rational decision made by a man who, face it, is not rational at this point. He would not have survived this long had it not been for the support of his bond and voluntary troops assigned and his chief of security, uh, Prachi Stildine. So, at the beginning of Hour of Judgment, Andre Kosciusko has been in Fleet for eight years. Four years, not so bad. Four years, Living Hill, um, and is in considerably r- deranged uh, state of mind when he is presented with challenges that uh, he re- he really needs to come up with some. Unimaginable strategies for
1: addressing. Well, let's go before we get into the story, and I, I really want to talk about Andre's relationship to the Bond involuntaries and and Still dying because these are, mm-hmm. the, I mean, these are really central to the book. That's what the book is a, a great part about. Is is they are sort of, sort of Andre's um, uh, outsourced conscience. <laughs> I don't know how else you put <laughs> something like that. So, um, but before we do that, let me ask you about your own development um how did you you were talking about reading chinese mysteries um how did you conceive the series did you was it the first thing you wrote was um was a um jurisdiction story or um how did how did this all come about and your origins as a writer perhaps
2: when i was 13 years old if i can remember that far back when i was 13 years old um and reading in this and that, the other thing, as you do when you're 13, um, the idea for a character had occurred to me um, who, in his person, uh, combined a lot of the challenges that later uh, went into Andrei Um, Kosciuszko. And it's, it's actually true that if you, that if I look at that character now, and i look at the um total arc of the series where it came from where it's going where it's that that kind of thing that um i can see that 13 year old girl's concept as kind of encapsulating the whole thing but um if when a person when i when i started thinking about the basic problem of somebody who is doing something that they really, really, really know they ought not to do. It's destructive, it's bad, it's harmful, it's sinful, and they keep on doing it. Well, you know, how are you going to really build a situation in which that conflict can arise uh and have it be a believable and credible situation? Uh that means uh, imagining something that doesn't really exist in uh, uh, in our history at this point, not in not in terms that would satisfy like a reader, like make it obvious that we have boiled down the conflict to uh, the 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 meatiest possible concentration, and the first uh Kosciuszko novel that I actually wrote, which, if God is good, is buried at the bottom of the deep blue sea and will never be seen by human eyes, um, was a, a, a manuscript, if you can call it that, that covered um, Hour of Judgment and the Devil in Deep Space, but it only took uh, 50 pages to do that. But those 50 pages were single-spaced. 10 pitch on legal paper, so heck. So the first Kosciuszko novel that I actually ever wrote, um, I I wrote, I think it was 1978, and it was a summary that contained two novels now, and I gave it to people, you know, the way you do, uh, and people read it, and some people were interested in the character and the situation, and um, we're interested in knowing more about this character and how did he get that way? Um, this is one messed up dude. How did he get that way? And and that required me to start thinking about exactly how did he get that way?
1: Were you doing it all along in your career? Um, you were in the not. You you do you've done a lot of things. I think I remember right that that you were in yeah. the service for a while.
2: Um, I started writing. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to laugh because you've heard this before. I started writing because I wanted to read the story. And I think that a lot of people are in the same uh, position, that they would really like to read thus and such a story, but nobody had written it yet. And so the only way to read thus and such a story was to write it yourself. Um, and if you are uh, any reasonable, intelligent, any reasonably intelligent person, once you write a story, and then you look at it and read it, you start to see immediately how that story can better answer your needs, better communicate what it was that you wanted to read when you were trying to write that story. So I kept on writing this story, that story, the other story, depending on what I wanted to read at any particular point. And, yeah, I bounced around with a bunch of stuff, but I kept on coming back to Andre Kosciuszko. And that's how that happened.
1: The bond and voluntaries. uh well i before before um we go on, let me just mention that um when I read uh what's uh prisoner of you No, know, exchange of hostages the first novel right mm-hmm. in uh back in ninety eight ninety nine when it came out um mm-hmm. it just i was just like what the hell just happened to me that was one hell of a book <laughs> um and <laughs> You know, and I, at at that point I was reading, um, I was doing reviews for publishers weekly and I was reading, uh, books for the science fiction book club. And I was pretty much, I, at that point I read more science fiction and was up on more science fiction than any other time in my life. So I, I just read everything at that, at that point because I had to, I was paid to. And, um, I, you know, this was something like, I haven't read anything like this. This is really cool. And I, um, gave it a a, a really uh, big i think I, I reviewed it for pw I, as i remember and, and really liked it um in any case um it blew me away and i followed it since then and i just i just have always thought that that you have a unique talent that um i'm so glad you did finally develop into something so um back to the novels uh tell us about the bond and Voluntaries, and particularly the ones that are um and in, in the group that's around andre um
2: mm-hmm. uh, starts out from the uh from the i think obvious point that um a guy with the kind of complex that andre's got is not going to be able to survive if he's by himself so uh and and also when you are writing a story uh you really want uh People in your story. There's more than one character that makes a story, uh, and and uh, and and so forth. Um, so I knew from the beginning that I'm ready to help. Is is I guess what it comes down to. And um, I also knew that if you were a professional torturer, you needed help. You needed uh, somebody to you know uh, manhandle a prisoner, for instance, for you, and. The Part of the problem there was most people will not do that for money. So, uh, okay, so, uh, let's take criminals and make that part of their sentence. Part of their sentence is that they have to torture people for you. But there's, there's no way to, um, there's no way to make that happen. You know, if you have a criminal and you uh, give him a sidearm, put him in security, make him responsible for helping a torturer do his torture work, there is absolutely nothing to prevent a, a criminal from shooting the torturer instead. And I probably would in their in their place. So it had to be it, there had to be some some reason. I needed a gimmick, if you will, uh that would uh guarantee That those criminals were not in a position to do the logical and reasonable thing and shoot the Inquisitor. Um, And so I went into uh, the brain implanted governor that was that I, I i thought okay so we've got this little thing it goes into your brain it's got linkages to the pain centers in your brain and it is looking for stress states it's looking for changes in your blood chemistry that tell you oh i've done something wrong or have i done something wrong did it, could i have done that better should i have done that better maybe i did something wrong um and so you take that you put that in somebody's head and then you uh Train that person uh, very carefully. Uh, he, with some fairly brutal methods, you train that person into a standard of behavior. Uh, exactly how you must behave to avoid a generating a stress state that will tell your governor that you need a a, a jolt of really unreasonable physical punishment right now. So you got bond involuntaries; they're under governor. There are things that they simply cannot do. They will be incapacitated with agony if they tried. So they an inquisitor is safe with bond involuntaries. I mean, Andre, uh you know, an ordinary human being is going to experience a certain amount of empathy uh, with other human beings. And Andre in particular comes from a culture where he's been surrounded by... House retainers all of his life, Uh, people that um, in the context of his culture, he is expected to have uh, relationships of, of mutual interdependency with. Uh, people that he can rely upon, people that can rely upon him. There is a uh, hierarchy there. He is the son of the Kosciuszko prince, so everybody has to listen to him eventually. But on the other hand, he's a young man, and so he hasn't really quite reached the heights of total autocracy. Um, so you take those things together, and you put uh, Andre in a situation where he meets a bond involuntary and voluntary Andre's um Instinct is going to be to relate to that bond and voluntary as a human being and a specific kind of human being um a, a kind of a um family retainer house guard uh on it's not on an equal level but it is a deeply emotionally resonant relationship uh in andre's culture and if you are somebody who is unfortunate enough to be a bond involuntary, then being treated like a human being has unexpected emotional resonance. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I think that one sees this uh, in today's reality in uh, populations that have been severely exploited of the time that somebody, for instance, the first time somebody, for instance, treats, um, a, um, a child slave or, um, a child soldier or, um, a woman that has been rescued from a horrific, uh, domestic situation. The first time you treat somebody like that, like a human being, the emotional impact can be overwhelming. Um, and it is kind of sort of based on that that Andre's primary relationship with bond and is, is based. His instinct is to approach and relate to a bond and voluntary like a human being. And if you're a bond and voluntary, you appreciate that. Uh, so the bond involuntaries are a default social support sort of, uh, sort of a situation, uh, social support that doesn't sound quite intense enough for what I have in mind. Andre never forgets the fact that they are not his friends to the extent that um, none of them asked to be here. He, he he never loses track of the fact that they are forced to accompany him and so on and so forth. Yes. At the same time, as trust relationships between him and individual bond and voluntary develop, uh, those Bond and Voluntaries do have the opportunity to uh, relate to him on a more personal level than they might otherwise. Um, and and then you got uh, – oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back. Uh, so all of the Bond and Voluntaries with whom Andre works during the course of his career are important to him and, in turn, have an important uh, – Piece of safeguarding his sanity, if you will. They ground him, they protect him, and so on and so forth. Uh, Robert St. Clair, uh, who is uh, a very important character in Hour of Judgment in particular, has uh, been with Andre since the first novel, An Exchange of Hostages, um, that was an that was where that origin story goes. And so Andre and Robert have been together for uh for more than eight years, uh, where um where Hour of Judgment starts. The only bond involuntary that uh Andre has known that goes back that far would be Jocelyn Curran, who was not in this story, uh, for very good and necessary reasons that I will not Mention in case you haven't read the first omnibus, um, and then you've got security chief still nine.
1: These are characters that that are the family, and they're carried through all the novels, including their in blood enemy as well, important. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah, so they're definitely they're definitely family. they are a they are a um a solid, tight-knit uh unit uh and security chief stildine um is, is, was never a mean person but he was uh he's, he's a slum kid and when he joined fleet one of the first things fleet found out about him was that He wasn't particularly interested in watching people scream, but on the other hand, it it didn't particularly bother him enough to send him into uh, alcohol uh, poisoning. Um, And so he became tagged uh, from almost his first days in fleet as somebody that was going to uh, make a good chief warrant officer for a ship's inquisitor. So when Andre gets to the Ragnarok, he's got uh, the Bond and Voluntaries there that uh, you meet in Hour of Judgment, as well as Robert St. Clair, who comes with him, and uh, and he meets Security Chief Um Security Chief Stildine um, at first misunderstands some signals that uh, Andre inadvertently uh passes and uh makes an advance, which he he really shouldn't have done because it violates uh, uh rank protocol. But Andre at that point um is more intolerant than he becomes as he gains a little bit of maturity. And um the incident puts some distance from them at the beginning. Um, and over the course of time uh Stildine decides that he kind of uh admires andre's grit and more than that um he is responsible for andre's physical training and that includes combat training and uh andre's never until andre got to fleet he he never did any hand to hand fighting, but he's not bad at it he's not good at it in security teams by any means. But he's not bad at it. And Stildine, watching uh Andre uh practice hand to hand on the uh, on the dance floor with uh, other security troops that are involved in his training, you know, looked at him and slowly realized that he didn't think he'd ever seen anything more beautiful in his life. In a strictly masculine sense, of course, but that's the way that Stildine likes them. Uh Stildine is a is a gay man. Uh and he's strongly uh, identified with members of his own sex, um, and so slowly over the course of time, Stildine's uh, uh, interest in Andre as a survivor starts to starts to morph and uh, grow and develop until something really, really terrible happens to Stildine, and he realizes that. He is changing himself to conform to what he thinks that Stilda, that, uh, Andre wants him to be. Uh, he has, uh, developed a concern for somebody else's good opinion. Um, it's a very painful process for Stilda becoming a human being. But the, the basic, uh, truth of the equation is that by And by Hour of Judgment, the first novel in Fleet Renegade, Stildine knows that he loves Andre. Andre knows that Stildine loves him. Andre respects, admires, and is fond of Stildine. But from Andre's point of view, sex between men is just a major taboo from his parochial home system. That's just not going to happen. Stildine's made up his mind to it you know, uh and, and moved on from that particular piece of of complication. Uh and that's where the situation stands at the beginning of hour of judgment. Um a situation which Andre knows is uh is not him showing himself at his best, uh and which will not really be resolved to the extent that it can be until uh
1: the novel Blood
2: Enemies. Yeah. And I said too
1: much. No, but still don't find somebody that does return his love eventually. Um Oh yeah. But um Andre's uh got a <clears throat> as we find out in uh in the next novel, Andre's got a wife and child as well. Mm-hmm. What is but before we go there, what what happens in Port Birkhayden in uh in our judgment? How does um I get involved in this. It's kind of a mystery that's going on.
2: Burke is a new rail world. Uh, new rail are an ethnic minority uh, that were placed cross lines of jurisdiction by their ancestral enemies, uh, the Payana. Um, one first encounters the new rail, the Payana, and the uh, depth and bitterness of the ethnic uh, hatred between the two groups in uh, Omnibus One in the novel Prisoner of Conscience. Um, and by the time we get to uh, Hour of Judgment, uh, and we're going to go to P- Port Burk-Hayden, um Burkhaiden is a, a subject world. It's been populated with a bunch of New Real refugees, uh, as well as the indigenous New Rail population of Burkaden. And the whole thing has been leased <coughs> to a, uh, a relation of Andres, uh, not a very close relation, but to an economic concern, a familial corporation from the Dolgaruki Combine for economic exploitation. And the Ragnarok is involved in traveling with the uh, Dolg Ruki Fleet belonging to the Danzlar Familial Corporation as it travels to Barcaden to officially take ownership of Barcaden from from Fleet for a period of X many years. And, uh, the uh, Danzlar principal will pay, uh, annual, uh, uh rental fees and in Return for that, he can do pretty much whatever he likes, uh, with Burkhaden and the people in it. Uh, as part of that effort, the Ragnarok has sent one of its officers ahead to Port Burkhaden just to check on the final arrangements for making sure that, uh, fleet has taken everything that anybody, that could be of any possible value out of Burkhaden so that, uh, uh, uh they don't leave the Danslar Prince with anything of value by accident, and uh this uh, officer of the Ragnaroks is a bully, and he uh um, he assaults uh and viciously assaults and rapes a woman in as in a service house uh, and the Danslar Prince decides that. For a number of different reasons, one of which is basic decency and one of which is the signal that it will send to his new population, the Denselard Prince decides that Burkhaden still belongs to Fleet at this point, so Fleet is going to send the best surgeon it can find to Burkhaden to fix the problem. And that surgeon is Andre, so Andre goes to Burkhaden ahead of uh, the Ragnarok uh, in order to uh, see what can be done to salvage the life and the uh, health of this poor woman. Does that answer your question?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, his various reasons, his uh, bond involuntary Robert St. Clair gets involved in the story, and Andre is um, faced with a very ugly dilemma in the book.
2: Yeah. 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 It's – um uh this uh hour of judgment presents Andre with the single most critical crisis that he has had to confront uh until we get to blood enemies um, all of this time um Fleet Captain Loudon has basically controlled Andre. By holding threat to the Bonden volunteers over Andre's head, uh, since Loudon is the captain, he can do anything with the Bonden Voluntaries he wants. They're fleet property. Um, and before Andre got there, uh, Loudon was uh, in the habit of hauling off and finding some reason to discipline one of them or another one of them uh, on afternoons when nothing was happening and he was bored. Uh, And in um, a novella um, that will be uh, coming out later on this year with another omnibus, I don't know if you want to put that in there, Tony.
0: Well, uh, Uh, yeah, is
2: Andre has made a devil's bargain with Captain Loudon. Andre will perform to Captain Loudon's standard in secured medical in the torture room. Loudoun will keep his hands off the Bond involuntaries. When you get to Port Burcaden, uh, Loudoun has decided to change the rules. And Andre decides, decides, no, it's gone too far. We can't have this anymore. Um, is there no way to protect these Bond involuntaries from Captain Loudoun? Uh, do I have to kill my own people just to keep them safe from, uh, Imposition. Well, actually, I have a simpler solution than that. Um, Should I say anything more about that at this point, Tony?
1: No. Well, this is. I mean, it's a. It's a cry. You know, and and Andre is over the course of the series, and especially here, um, beginning to. um, He never liked being a torturer. He liked torturing, but. He he's got this other heroic side that, you know, that's and this is when he begins to to sort of uh get over his alcoholism like addiction, or at least uh to go dry to get dry, I guess, in a way.
2: Um Yeah, to get dry. He's he's gone through over the course of the novels up until uh, Hour of Judgments, he's over the course of the years, he's gone through several different coping strategies. Well, what if I try what if I try believing that it's appropriate to do these things to people, that it's uh that it's uh it's okay? Okay, that doesn't work. What if I try believing this? What if I try that? None of it works. In hour of judgment he finally hits the point where he says, where he realizes that there is one solution. It's a really easy solution. Um they'll kill him, uh, but he won't have to torture anymore. So uh at that point, he, he makes up his mind that uh, even if it means that they kill him, that he is not going back to secure medical. And it's going to leave him with some challenges because uh, torture is an addiction. The, uh, the passionate response that Andre has in secure medical is an extremely powerful, addictive experience, and he has just decided that he is just not going to do it anymore. He doesn't realize at that time how powerful his addiction is going to prove. Um, and it's uh, it's as a uh, follow-on to the events of Hour of Judgment that Andre will go home in the next novel, in the omnibus, The Devil in Deep Space. Uh, he has a sweetheart. Uh, it's not the woman that he was supposed to marry, uh, but... At the level of the Kosciuszko Familial Corporation, you don't actually marry people, you you merge familial corporations. And he's got a little boy, uh, and since Andres made up his mind that sooner or later they're going to realize that he is no longer going to comply, and then he is going to be executed, before that happens, he needs to make uh, sure that his sweetheart and his child are protected uh, to the maximum extent possible. this requires a an act of significant defiance of social expectations and family dynamics.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about how all that works. The the how the Dogoruki, um society combine and, and the, his society is his home world society or his home area society is, is set up he's he I mean this is a prince basically here yeah rather like a merchant and in prince. his
2: family they're princes and princesses uh more in the um central european sense than in the european sense and by that I mean that uh queen of england for instance um well I guess all of I guess all of Charles's sons are princes aren't they but, um, Andre's prince, uh, his brothers are princes, his sisters are princesses, um, but only one of them is, uh, is inheriting. And so the distinction is between being a son of the Kosciuszko prince, Andre's father, and being the son of the Kosciuszko prince, uh, which is Andre. Um, yeah, Dolgoruki society is kind of fun because I think I think it's kind of fun because it is in flux. The Dolgoruky Combine is a collection of rural families of uh uh of people who are uh, similar, very similar genetically and ethnically. There are several worlds within the Dolgoruki Combine. Uh there's Azanri, which is where Andre comes from, which is where the, the Best sorts of Dolgoruki come from. A high near remains the, uh, uh, the cultured language. Uh, it's arcane. It takes years of study and so on and so forth. You've uh, got Dolchek Dolgoruki. You've got uh Rakchek Dolgoruki. you got this kind of Dolgoruki and that kind of Dolgoruki. And at the very bottom of the scale, you've got Sarva. Uh, one of Andre's security is Sarva. And uh he kind of enjoys bringing Lech Karenko with him to uh, uh uh to his home because he knows that uh Lech being Sarva is going to be uh, create a bit of a stir at the uh, rarefied atmosphere of uh of Andre's home uh home uh, environment. Um the combine is is old and its organization is parochial and patriarchal. Um, it was founded on filial piety. Filial piety is probably the single foundational value of the Dolgariki Combine in terms of social uh, is social values. Uh, the uh, Dolgariki Combine worshipped the Holy Mother. Uh, if you are Sarabha, you would probably tell me that the Holy Mother is an near bitch, but we, we're not going to go in there. We're not going to go there. <laughs> Uh, and in uh, Andre's family is not the richest of the Asnier aristocratic families uh, or familial corporations. Uh, it is one of the oldest. Um, and being culturally conservative in Andre's family, you had to be a boy to inherit. So Andre's got an older sister, and when Andre was born. She was shipped off to a convent. Well, you know, she's not going to have a bad life. She was shipped off to a convent. She's going to be abbess, and as abbess, she's going to, be, uh, she's going to basically own the entire ecclesiastical organization of churches and monasteries and so on and so forth that are funded by the Kosciuszko Familial Corporation. Um, so it's an Andres family. Had to be the boy. But the woman to whom Andre has been betrothed since his young age, her family, uh, Ichogatra, the Ichogatra Familial Corporation decided that we weren't going to do it like that. I don't know if it was because there was only the one daughter or not. But in the Ichigatra, uh Familial Corporation, the firstborn child is the one that gets to inherit. Uh, so actually, Andre's intended fiancé is inheriting princess. Now, now this represents, you know, a fairly substantial shift in Dolgorukhi cultural values. And part of the thing that, you know, kind of tickles me to think about uh, when I'm just idly musing is what Andre's older sister thinks about the fact that nowadays it is in several families possible for the oldest child to get everything rather than the oldest boy. Mm-hmm. Um oh. I guess that's
1: about it. Yeah. Well, there could we could go into that a little more. Let's let's uh talk about um the final book in the series though, um just so we can uh we can fit them all in, which is warring states. Um and that is we we move away from Andre for a portion of this book. Um we're dealing with a very high level of jurisdiction politics. So how does the bench work and and what's going on here?
2: There are nine judiciaries uh, un- in jurisdiction space. A judiciary is um, uh, a collection of convenience, as it were, of um, a collection of royal families in uh, roughly contiguous areas of space with uh, and roughly the same size and so on and so forth, each with uh, a judge presiding. Now, there are judges presiding at all levels from the topmost all the way down to the um circuit court level, but the judges presiding at the judiciary level are the ones that have the ultimate say in uh the rule of law and the judicial order for all of jurisdiction space now uh and Andra at the Dolgoruki Combine uh belongs to Sant Dassadar Judiciary. And and then there's this uh then there's this um undefined uh collection or scattershot or a sprinkling of you could hardly call them worlds because they're so primitive uh in an area that's called gone beyond space. But we can talk about that again in a little bit. Let's talk about judiciaries. Up until now up until uh at at the time and in the uh in the environment in which these novels take place uh there are nine judiciaries and there is one first judge the first judge is one of nine, but the first judge has the uh tie breaking vote um, and I'm not really sure whether or not she can uh swing a majority on her own say so but the uh but jurisdiction And its nine judiciaries does have one single most powerful judge. Now, all of the judges under jurisdiction are women, because way back when uh, the jurisdiction was warning, it was determined by somebody, probably the author just having a bit of a joke, frankly. It was determined that uh, men were too impulsive and excitable to handle the law. So all of the judges have been female ever since. And in terms of um of changing cultural uh, norms and mores as things considered, uh jurisdiction's at the point at which it's really starting to become uh, possible to contemplate the idea that it could be a male first judge. But never mind, let's go back.
1: I um, would point out that the first judge and- I would point out that the bench is the bench of an of uh evil totalitarian state. that's governed by all females, but very effectively.
2: (laughs) Your point is well taken, sir. (laughs) So, um, what generally happens is that when the first judge starts to fail, health wise, or even gets to be an age where, uh, mortality looms, then, um, The judges will get together and they will decide amongst themselves who is going to be the next first judge. But what happens to us uh, in the Devlin D space, actually, is that uh, the first judge pots off and dies in a totally unexpected manner. So we've lost the first judge, um, and there has not been sufficient planning for who is going to be the next first judge. Well, this throws the whole thing into uh, into a cocked hat. In warring states, uh, the uh, special agents, if you will, of the, of the uh, jurisdiction space uh, have come together in convocation to try and figure out what to do in a hurry to resolve the problem of not having a, a seated first judge who will be able to take overall all direction of, uh, of the law. Um, and there is that going on um, it will lead to what are actually world-shattering consequences um, at the same time there's, there are some ways in which the whole thing devolves in actually a, a, a positive direction because we like to be hopeful in these novels as hopeful as possible mm-hmm. um, at the same time or, or while that is going on, while bench intelligence specialists are gathered in convocation to attempt to wrestle out between them who is the best first judge to select, uh, Andre's been working on some issues ever since he went back to, uh, Azanre in the Devlin D space. He went back to Azanre in the Devlin D space. He got his, uh, His uh, mission accomplished. He came back to the Ragnarok. Uh, The first judge died. Nobody is paying particular attention to him. This is his chance to get his bond and voluntaries safely away from the bench uh, before the bench figures out that Andre has refused to perform his judicial function, which is an act of mutiny, which means that he's going to die really, really horribly so uh, andre uh, in the devil d space, he's uh, pretty much focused on uh, his his plot to steal the bond involuntaries from the bench and send them away into God beyond space, and then something happens that he doesn't anticipate um, it kind of tickles me um, I think I mentioned earlier that part of the crucial uh program in creating a bond and voluntary security slave is extensive conditioning. Um, well, if if as a bond and voluntary you have survived the end of your term, or as it is said, claimed the day, uh, then you become a free person. Um, any criminal uh, charges are completely excised. Um, you get your accumulated pay and benefits over a 30-year period, you get your fleet pension, uh, and you get a bunch of other perks that are kind of nice. For instance, um, uh, government officials have to stand up when you come into the room. So if you manage to survive for 30 years, you know, there's some nice things about being an ex-bond and voluntary. But you can't just pull a governor and then wave goodbye. Uh, not after 30 years of living with the damned thing, on top of the conditioning that you had to undergo in the first place. So, under normal circumstances, when a bond in voluntary claims a day, that guy uh, has to go to a uh, detention processing center like the one in which he was placed under bond in the first place, and um, and and given months of uh, encouragement and treatment to unlearn the conditioning and become a free person again. Well, Andre has stolen the bond and voluntaries that he has with him on the Ragnarok in these novels and sent them into Gone Beyond where they will be safe. Uh, the, uh, The fleet can't get into Gone Beyond to get them and it wouldn't really make much sense for them to try. It's not value added. But that means that all those guys are being dropped off in the middle of nowhere with nobody there who knows who they are what they are, what they've been through, and what kind of issues are going to arise when you've just suddenly removed the governor that has controlled their lives. Um, and so um, our friend Stildine takes a look at the situation and says, you know, Andre loves those men, and he wouldn't send them unaccompanied into Gone Beyond. Um And therefore, I will go into God Beyond with them to be their interface. And I'm just really not going to bother discussing this with Andre before I leave, because he should have discussed this with me before. But that's okay. I'm just leaving. Um When Andre realizes what Stildine has done, and that Stildine has done that, Uh, because Stildine knew that Andre would want da-da-da, it gets complicated. At that point, Andre realizes that he owes Stildine the biggest apology of his life, and the only way that he's going to be able to make that apology is to chase Stildine down in Gone Beyond Space, uh, leading us into the next novel.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that would be blood Enemies, which is coming out in April um yeah well we should going on. yeah, we should mention that um in our effort to uh, it, when we bring back our writer um writer's uh books at Bain like we did with Sharon and Lee and stephen miller's uh Liaden universe books uh we we want to get it all back out there, and so we have um we're going to collect all the uh the very short stories you've written in under jurisdiction um in a uh in a third omnibus that is what do we decide to call it? Um
2: I think it's Fleet Insurgent.
1: Fleet Insurgent, yes. And that'll be out next fall. Uh-huh. So we're gonna have uh-huh. lots of we're gonna have everything. And then we'll have the new novel and it's gonna be uh, extremely cool. Um I should just uh we should probably cut it off here, but um I couldn't cannot recommend more of this great series and We're so proud to be bringing it back here, Bain. And uh, the book that is out now is Fleet Renegade, which contains the uh, books four, five, and six in the Under Jurisdiction series by Susan R. Matthews. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Susan, uh, thanks so much for being with us.
2: I had a lovely time. Thanks,
1: Tony. Now we continue with our complete Audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyber-spy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea
0: Without a Shore. Should I turn over command to Corey? Vessie said boldly. He's a fighting officer. You know what I mean. Tell me. No, you should not, Adele said. Captain Leary put you in command in his absence. I trust his judgment on such matters, and so should you. Because of the circumstances, Adele's eyes were on the Hablinger siege lines a tiny ripple crossed the image every few minutes, rather like an extremely slow raster scan. The signals were being sent from tramp freighters whose optics were mediocre by naval standards, even when the signals were sharpened by the Kaisha's top-of-the-line console. The Independence Council had sequestered three blockade runners and sent them into orbit under Spacer Hale and two lieutenants from the Corsiran Navy, officers superfluous to the Fretches' present needs. It wasn't a surprise that the Pantellerian exiles ran heavily to officers rather than common spacers, nor that those officers had been unwilling to give up their ranks the way Casale had done. Corsera no longer had any imaging satellites. Both sides had made them targets as soon as the Pantellerian expeditionary force arrived, apparently for no better reason than that it was fun to destroy things. This wasn't a war of movement in which orbital reconnaissance might be crucial. The Pantalarians would probably send up destroyers to deal with the corsairs eventually, but the observation ships had lifted off from Brotherhood only an hour before the critical moment. No officer in the Pantellerian squadron was going to get out of bed before dawn, simply because three blockade runners were loitering in orbit. I'm not six, mistress, Vessi said. No, you're not, Adele said calmly. You should be very glad that you're not. The only thing worse might be to be me. You're a known quantity to Daniel, however. She used the given name to emphasize subconsciously that the words were coming from Captain Leary's friend and confidant. This was in many ways identical to interrogation. Adele was listening to what the other party said and tailoring her responses to bring the other party to the state of mind she herself desired. In this particular case, that was what Vessie probably desired also, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that an officer on whom Daniel was counting would function efficiently. That was Adele's duty. If Daniel had thought Corey or Hale or I should be in charge, he would have appointed that person, Adele said, her voice as mechanically precise as a metronome. He knows what sort of actions will be required in the next few minutes, and he knows how you are likely to perform those actions. That's what he wants. Adele smiled, though she wasn't certain that her version of the expression would look reassuring. Still, Vessie should know her by now. In any case, Adele said, I believe that you'll do just as well as anyone else, Daniel included, if it becomes necessary for the Kaisha to fight a Pantellerian destroyer. Vessie's miniature image looked out from Adele's display. Yes, she said, nodding. I would, I'd ram them. Adele hadn't expected an answer to her joke, and she certainly hadn't expected that answer. Then I presume, she said with a broader smile than previously, that you now understand why Captain Leary put you in charge in his absence. Kaisha, this is six, Daniel said through the console. Wait one, over. Ship, this is five, said Vessi on the general push. Action stations. The crew was already at action stations, to the degree there was anything of the sort on a tramp freighter. Personnel who had no duties on liftoff were in their bunks gripping sidearms and such other weapons as they fancied. The hatch was closed. The ship groaned as Pasternak began reeling up the intake hose. It had been drawing water from the harbor to replenish the reaction mass, which the idling thrusters converted into plasma while the kaisha waited in her slip. On a whim, Adele expanded the image of the Hablinger region on her display instead of returning to communications duties. Anything critical would appear as a text crawl at the bottom of her display. I'm more worried than I realized. Worried about Daniel.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jugkiewicz, and a cat o' nine tails tipped with Swedish fish and gummy bears, plus a special greeting from the ionosphere, which sings its thanks and praise in a cute but eerie theremin-like voice for Susan R. Matthews, author of Fleet Renegade. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.